please give your attention to a reading from God's word. Deuteronomy. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Psalm 65. Praise is due to you. 
O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pasture lands of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you might hear this sermon as three cheers for traditional values. Um, I'm, I'm of the opinion that there is a rebellious angst in every generation based on what I read in the scriptures. And one of those rebellions is simply to dismiss as archaic and unuseful and unprofitable all vestiges of tradition. And uh, if you've been in our church, you've heard it exactly, at least in my teaching, you've heard exactly one message about Thanksgiving Day. And so I'm going to amend my errors this morning and commend to you the benefit of using your Thanksgiving Day, which most employers are, are uh, bound to give you, uh, to use it in a profitable way and to use it in a way that would give honor to God and give thanks to God, a way that would not be simply going along with the current of the world. And just at the beginning, I'm going to save uh, my time by not going into the manifold errors of Thanksgiving in the way it's celebrated, but just as a very cursory mention, the fact that we have a day of wanton spending in which we celebrate, often with violence as we trample over others, to get deals on physical goods, that that is posed after the day in which we are supposed to be giving thanks to our Almighty Creator, is nothing more than God shining a mirror to our hypocrisy of consumerism and greed. It is the manifestation of a nation's soul that has gone wayward. Nevertheless, that's all I'll say about Black Friday. I would encourage... <laughs> I would encourage you, if you go, get me a Christmas present. <laughs> it, it should be, sometimes, from time to time, you should look at reality, and sometimes reality starts looking back. 
And, and that's one of those moments in the year where it does so starkly. So, nevertheless, this is not going to be a message about the historic founding of Thanksgiving in our country, although it is a, it is a good thing to read about the, the provision that God gave to the first founders of our country. It would be a deeply worthwhile endeavor for you to get a copy. Uh, our brother, um, uh, uh, Chris Wu, before he left, gave me a copy of a book uh, called The Bible, America's Source of Law and Liberty. And it's by a guy named uh, Scott McDowell, not Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell's famous author, Scott McDowell. And uh, in it, he spends about 20 chapters. It's a 150-page book, very short chapters. He spends about 20 chapters outlining the Bible as the source for our culture and source for not only our laws, but our institutions. One of the things he brings out very strongly is all of the meaning behind Thanksgiving Day is directly derived from these sorts of passages in the Old Covenant Scriptures that, they, that our forefathers in this country uniquely saw God's grace and providence, his provision on their civilizations, their small cities, that they didn't die out. And that was the origin of Thanksgiving Day. Nevertheless, God has manifold, uh, man, or he's multiplied manifold blessings upon us in every way and quality, every technology, as we'll see, every manufacturing good, every mechanical good, theories of knowledge, ec- economy, uh, all of these things God has multiplied. And yet, to the degree that he has multiplied it, it has been an inverse response. We have given him less thanks the more that we have. And if we were wise Christians, we would use the Old Testament scriptures to mine the history of Israel to see that we are behaving just like those nations. And we ought not to go off in that direction without thinking hard and, and repenting well. So I don't want to give you the history today of American Thanksgiving. I want to give you the history of biblical Thanksgiving as it relates the Exodus. So first, we're going to look at God's salvation in the Exodus. And just as we begin to outline, I have three specific things I want to talk about the reading today, and then the last and final point will be practical instruction. It will be very applicable as you approach Thanksgiving. First, we're going to look at God's salvation in the Exodus. We're going to be reading Deuteronomy 8 in the context of redemptive history. So we're going to be reading that passage and we're going to be looking at how is the nature and character of God being demonstrated in the gracious giving of not only salvation out of the Exodus, but also the granting of the law, specifically the gracious promised land, and then the response of the Israelites, which was sinful in their pride, ingratitude, and the judgment which subsequently followed. There's, there's kind of a train of thought, if you will, that, that God delivers them from bondage. They go through the wilderness and are rebellious, even though he is giving them provision in the wilderness. And then he multiplies that provision by bringing them into the promised land. And then, as Deuteronomy 8 warns us, and then through the rest of the scriptures we know surely happens, the people go away and astray in their hearts. And so we're going to see, finally, in the fourth point, the way by which we give thanks to to God for all things. How is this a metaphor or a foreshadowing of the great exodus that happens in the cross? And how does the the fail how do the failures of Israel uh, provide for us a warning that we should not be like them? And um, if you've been in our church any strong amount of time or long amount of time, you might remember 1 Corinthians 10. If if you thought of 1 Corinthians 10, you get I guess bonus points this morning that 
we're going to see that Paul gives a warning to us saying that we should, the right use of Old Testament scriptures is to learn, not just that Christ is present, but to learn that we should not imitate the Israelites in their rebellion. So, God delivered the Israelites out of a nation of e- called Egypt. For those of you who are fuzzy on the details, God gave a promise to Abraham to multiply him into a great nation. Though Abraham at the time had no heir, no children, God's promise said to Abraham, through your seed, through your offspring, God would bless all the families of the earth. This is God's answer to the Tower of Babel. The nations are scattered in their rebellion against him. And God immediately makes a repair by telling Abraham that he will bless all those nations who he has just had to judge for their sin. Abraham's seed will be the source of the blessing which comes to these nations which are running away from God in his judgment over them. So God gives a promise to Abraham. He tells Abraham that his descendants will go down to a a nation. He doesn't name that nation, but we know later that it is Egypt. And there they begin to multiply. At first, God gives them grain in the nation of Egypt. There's a worldwide famine, which he causes to send Jacob and his sons down into Egypt. And from that place, God then blesses those Hebrews. They begin to multiply, they grow, and then we pick up the story with a Hebrew boy named Moses who God chooses sovereignly to bring out of the hierarchy of the Egyptian rulers and to set apart for himself as one who would deliver his people. And so God chooses one of the Hebrews to be the agent through whom he delivers his people. Nevertheless, the bondage that they were trapped in in Egypt was harsh and severe. Now, we don't have time to go through all of the different ways in which they were enslaved, but the bondage was not merely, as we see in the time of the wanderings in the wilderness, the bondage was not merely physical, it was also spiritual. The bondage that they were entrapped, they were entrenched in the pleasures of Egypt. There's these moments in the book of Hebrews where we see saying about Moses, Moses considered Christ as better than what? the pleasures of Egypt. And all those who were led in the Exodus had to make that same decision. Interestingly enough, I, I think it's, it's amazing to me, but very little room in the scriptures is given to any notion of who stayed behind. And I have to imagine that there were mixtures in the house of Israel, that there were, we do hear about this mixed multitude that goes up, but I'm always, I've always had the question in the back of my mind, who stayed behind and why aren't they recorded? I think there might be someone. That's just a curiosity I have, which will have to wait till heaven. Nevertheless, God delivers this, this people because of the great promises that he gave to Abraham. Not only was Exodus a gracious, not only was the Exodus a graceful, gracious salvation of God, but he also demonstrated his grace along the way. The Exodus itself was gracious. Then we, as we hear in our reading that God gave them grace in giving them food and preserving them in the wilderness, and then he crowned them with grace in bringing them into the promised land. The law itself, as given in the time of their wanderings, was gracious. I, I very strongly hope that after sitting in our church for years, our people by sitting under teaching for years, would finally be delivered from the antinomian doctrine that is so prevalent in the church today that the law was given as a curse. 
Curse comes through the breaking of the law, not the giving of the law. The law was given, as we see in today's reading, as the means by which the people could stay in the land. They entered the land by grace, and they have to stay in the land by obedience. But even that means of obedience is only through grace, because they cannot obey unless God graciously gives his law. If God did not give his law, if they had to sort of figure out God's law or figure out what righteousness was, they would break it along the way. Nevertheless, God sovereignly and graciously bestows his law, not so that they could attain righteousness, not so that they could attain grace, because the history shows us, as we read through the scriptures, that everything was gracious already. They were in a context of God's gracious dealings, and the law was given as a cherry on top, if you will. Verse 1, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply, Go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. You see, the law was given as a fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. Abraham was given a promise that your offspring would become a mighty nation. And through that nation, God would bless all the nations. That that would be like a priesthood nation. It would be a nation full of kings and priests who, using God's grace rightly, would then be able to extend by taking the law to the furthest corners of the earth that they would announce the providence and, and promise of God. And, and that, that was their privilege, that was their charge that was given to them as a nation through the covenant promise given to Abraham. And just because they failed that promise does not mean the means by which they would have fulfilled that promise is evil. So, the, throughout every step of their journey, God sovereignly and graciously protected and prospered the Israelites. First, God graciously revealed to them their need for him to transform their souls to be obedient. You see, the history of the wanderings is actually just as important as the exodus and the entrance to the land. It's why the scripture actually gives more room if you look at the chapters and just the, the physical space or the number of words that are devoted to the time period of the wanderings, it's larger than the exodus. And, and the reason for that is because God is doing something gracious to, to them. He is not merely taking them through the wilderness so that they would learn to tough up. He's taking them through the wilderness, as we see in, in verse 2 here, so that they would recognize their need for God. Verse 2, you shall remember. The call to remembrance in the Old Testament scriptures is a call to remember God's grace. And so hearing this, this charge, you shall remember, we are instantaneously listening for what was God doing in a gracious fashion? You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you. What was the great sin of Egypt? It was its pride. Pharaoh considered himself to be a god. And when God told him to let his people go, Pharaoh dared to stand against the Almighty's will. And we understand that the nation's sins uh, intimately impact the people. The people of Israel were at one with the sins of Egypt. They were not sinless before the Exodus. That's important to understand. The people of Israel loved their time in Egypt until they were enslaved. And interestingly enough, even though they cry out for mercy, when God recounts the story, 
he doesn't bring to mind just that they cried out for mercy, but rather he brings to mind, I did this so that I could fulfill my promise. Not just an answer to their groanings. He does answer their groanings, but the chief reason is because God has promised it. So God humbled them, testing you to know what was in it. And this, this word, to know, is actually might be better translated to disclose or to discover or to reveal. The reason God tested the Israelites was to discover or to disclose or to uncover. That's what discover means. Not to, not to come to knowledge, but rather to demonstrate evidence, to disclose what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You see, what God did in the times of the wanderings of the wilderness was he showed them their deep need for him to convert their hearts. That's the whole point of the Old Testament, is God sovereignly, again and again, reveals to his people, you cannot obey in your own strength alone. You need to be transformed. Further, he taught them of their greater need for spiritual food than physical food, that they would see him as the source of all life and all benediction. God is training the nation of Israel. Verse 3 is so interesting to me because it contains very paradoxical statements unless you understand that the hunger was fulfilled, that God let them hunger and then fulfilled it to show them two things. First, that they have a greater need for spiritual food. And secondly, that he is always the provider of all blessing. Verse three reads as follows. And he, God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. What is this saying? It's saying that God showed them their appetite. And in their appetite, their fleshly grumblings were revealed. Multiple times they come against Moses and Aaron, and Moses and Aaron reply back to them, who are we that you should grumble against us? Can we bring down food for you? No. And so God let them hunger, and then God satisfied that hunger. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And those of you who've read the story of the temptations of Christ, you hear Christ's quotation here, as he defeats the enemy in the wilderness, the true Israelite Christ overcomes the enemy, does not grumble, does not use his power, which he had the authority and right to, to cause bread to come about so that he could eat, but rather trusts in the sovereignty of his father, that his father will, as verse 3 tells us, let him hunger and then be fed. That is exactly what Jesus is doing in the temptation. He is succeeding where the people had failed. But nevertheless, it's important to see, as we're going to look at in, a, in just a verse or two, the fatherly heart of God as he leads his son, Israel, through the wilderness. As their heavenly father, he clothes them and guards their steps from stumbling. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Isn't that an amazing thing that they had these coats? I have garments in my attic that I have not thrown away because I have this pack rat tendency. I just also don't have the time to clean my attic. But I have these garments which are from my earlier years in life and they've got all these holes in them. And I've only worn them for a few years. And here this verse is saying that God pers persevered their clothing so that it would not get holes in it. 
And they weren't just wearing it for a few years. They were wearing it for 40 years. And not just sitting around their homes. They were wandering through a wilderness. This would be like the infinite pair of Levi's that never gets a hole in the knees. This is what God has done. For the entire nation, he sovereignly caused their clothing to not wear out. You see, these were a people who were designated to be holy. And these were a people who were granted this miracle of walking around and knowing their neighbors, probably where they were camping, and and having the constant reminder, wow, there's that jacket that I saw 30 years ago, and it's still there. You see, this was a people who could not escape the revelation of God's grace that was constantly before their eyes. Verse 5, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. You see, everything that God is doing to the nation of Israel through their wanderings is saying, I'm your father. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you food. I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to, as this verse says, not cause your foot to swell. Have you ever been walking a long time and your ankles begin to swell up and your foot, your heel, your toes, they begin to get sore? This, I believe, is what God is saying. He didn't make them walk too much at one time. I don't think it is just a sovereign kind of perseverance of their ankles or their feet. I think that might be included, but I think what is larger here is that he didn't drive them too hard. God was not a taskmaster like the ones in Egypt. He led them through the wilderness and let them hunger where they needed to hunger and fed them where they needed food, caused water to come forth from the rock, showed them springs, caused bitter waters to become sweet. This is what our father was doing to our spiritual forefathers, if you will. In truth, God was Israel's father providing for his needs, clothing him, and teaching him how to walk. I remember the first time I ever was moved to tears by beauty in the scripture. It's it's probably one of my favorite passages of scripture to this day. But Hosea 11 is Hosea's recounting of the history of Israel, and he's speaking on the behalf of God. And and that chapter begins, when Israel was a child, oh, how I loved him. It goes on in a few verses to say, I led him with cords of human kindness. I taught him how to walk. And then you instantly move from this tender heart of the father to the fact that this son, Israel, has lifted up his heel against the Lord and has begun to strike back at this kind-hearted father. The prodigal son is not just a myth of a person in the New Testament. It's not just a parable. It is the nation of Israel. They were the prodigal son. And so what God is doing in these passages is he's showing, he's demonstrating, he's reminding his people, I have loved you with an overwhelming and unending love. I have been your father. I have delivered you and I have fed you and I have provided for you. So knowing this context, the law then is not given as a burden to Israel, but to train them how they might stay in the promised land. Verse six, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. So we might ask, if God's provision was ample or enough in the wilderness, how much more will his grace and provision abound in the promised land? That is to say, if God made a way in the wilderness, how much better is the promise going to be when it's fulfilled? And God tells them quite clearly, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. I had a pomegranate the other day. Just to to be truthful, I didn't care too much for it. (laughs) 
It's a sidebar. A land of olive trees and honey. That's, that's to keep you awake. Verse 9, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. Interestingly enough, an anecdote that I had happened to me, I, we, we celebrated Thanksgiving as a company this last Friday. We all brought food and it was a potluck and I made bread because I like making bread and it's cheap. And I, I, I made so much bread that I had extra loaves to give at the away because I, I had bread at home and I didn't, so I gave away a loaf. And I only in reading this verse, I was reflecting on it. Wow, scarcity prevents graciousness. It prevents giving. He's, he's creating a culture that has ample room. They have the ability to be kind. In which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of hills you can dig copper. God has granted to them, by these verses, everything that is needed for a full civilization. Ample and variegated land and water. Interestingly, God says the water will flow in the valleys. That's where the water is. But he says it'll also flow in the hills. This is an amazing land. This is a land that defies physics. Agricultural diversity for a thriving economy. They have pomegranates, wheat, barley, everything needed for bread, dates, figs, vineyards, olive trees. Everything that's needed for agriculture is already there. And they've been given minerals for technology and military strength. If you, if you don't have an understanding of ancient history, a place that has iron and copper is a military power. If you don't have iron, you have to trade with another nation to get iron, and they're not going to give you iron because iron is used to make swords and chariots and armor and shields. So he's given them everything they need for a culture and a civilization and an economy, and a military. This is what God gave to his people. Beyond this, they inherit the means of wealth creation. We see in Deuteronomy 6, God lists that they're going to be given cities. Cities have walls. Cities with walls cannot be toppled easily. They're going to be given houses that they didn't build, vineyards that they didn't dig and plant, wine presses that they didn't set up etc., etc. God is going to satisfy them fully. Verse 10, you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Knowing their fickle hearts now, God immediately turns to warn them, saying that if you grow fat upon the graces and do not remember to give thanks to me, you will turn aside in your heart. Verse 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and when your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If there were one or two verses in the Old Testament that would retell the history of our country, it would be these verses. We have been, as a nation, prospered greatly, as we'll get to at the end of the message. We've been prospered greatly, and we have recapitulated not only the grace of God in the founding of this country, but also the evils of Israel in turning away from our God. First, the Israelites will forget the Lord, which will result in disobedience. Whenever the Israelites forget the memory of God's exodus or his salvation that he demonstrated, they immediately go to serve idols and their hearts drift away from him. Therefore, he reminds them exactly here of his powerful deliverance and extravagant mercy, both in the Exodus and the wilderness. Look closely at verse 14. Then your heart will be lifted up, and you will forget the Lord your God. Now, 
is this merely a forgetting of who he is in a theological fact of Yahweh's existence? No, it is a forgetting. It is a severing from the active memory of the deliverance that he did in his mercy and in his grace. The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock. Interestingly, God brings to mind the two places in the Old Testament scriptures in the account of the wilderness where they were most likely to see the wrath of God on display. If you remember, at one point they grumble against God and God sends among them fiery serpents and then he tells Moses to make a bronze pole with a serpent upon it and when they look to that bronze pole, they are instantly saved and and we know from the New Testament that that serpent was Christ, of course. Nevertheless, also when they were grumbling against the Lord, God told Moses to bring forth water out of the rock and interestingly enough, Moses strikes the rock foreshadowing, of course, the fact that For Christ to be the living water of John 6, he has to first be the rock that was struck in in his death. And so God is calling to mind the two places where he overruled their rebellion with mercy and grace. That they rebelled against him strongly as a nation. They conspired together. They joined against Moses and Aaron. And in that moment, God remembered his covenant of mercy and gave them grace instead of wrath, which they justly deserved. And so God has not just delivered them from Egypt. He's not just caused them to persevere. He's not just sustained their clothing. He also has not actively judged them. He has been restraining his hand in judgment and causing them to be able to live despite their sins. Verse 16, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. What an interesting verse. To do you good in the end, that at the onset Everything looks gloomy and it looks like this people is rebellious and then at the end, he's going to bring about good. The nation that had been caught in slavery at this point now boasts of extreme power, even the power of the Almighty to bring his covenant to pass. I want you to remember closely, the Egyptians enslaved the people of Israel so that they had to make bricks without straw. This was the sort of totalitarian control that the Egyptians were able to wield over the Israelites. And less than 50 or 60 years later, the next generation of Israelites forgets the conditions that they had, the powerlessness that they had, and they boast of not only the power to deliver themselves, but the power to bring the covenant to pass on their own. Look at the implication of verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to do what? To get wealth. For what purpose? That he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. You see, the purpose of the covenant isn't to give them wealth for their own sake. We see through the history of Israel that the gold and the silver that they take from the Egyptians because God granted them favor, they immediately use it to make a golden calf. And yet we know later on in the time of the Exodus that that was destined for the adorning of the tabernacle. God gives them wealth so that they can establish their nation so that God can use it to reach the nations around them. That's how he confirms their covenant. Not so that they get cash. Just very 
I want to lay out that strong warning of misreading this text. It's not so that they would get wealth, that that would be the end goal of the covenant. They get wealth so that they can be a shining nation in a dark world. As we see in the time of Solomon that the queen of Sheba comes and recognizes the grace of God on his kingdom and is converted. The point is that God is adorning his people with grace and the ability to live as a society, as a civilization, and they are going to begin to boast about it, that it is their own power that is the source of why they have all the things they have. And yet we see in these verses that everything that they inherit came from God himself. It was God's sovereign plan and choice. Finally, God warns that their idolatry will lead to the expulsion from the land as it will vomit them out of the land. Interestingly enough, the only two clear places vomiting out is seen is in Leviticus uh, chapter 16. Chapter 16 outlines the sexual immorality and then chapter 18 outlines the actual means by which they will be expelled from the land. But interestingly enough, Jesus uses that same imagery that for those churches which are neither cold nor hot, he will vomit them out of his mouth. And so God warns them that if they go into idols, that they will be expelled from the land. If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And it might be clearly inferred from both this and the passage in Leviticus 18 that the reason God expelled the Canaanites is because they were practicing the same sort of sins that then the Israelites later repeated. The exact same idols and gods that those Canaanites worship, the Israelites begin to worship those same gods. So what is the point of all of this? What's the point of learning this history? What's the point of understanding the warnings that were given to the Israelites and understanding how they apply to us. Well, the point is this, as we've taught before in this church and would always bring to remembrance, is that in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul reminds us two times. He reminds us two times that all of these things happened as examples for us that we would learn to not go astray in our hearts like the Israelites did. Earlier in chapter 10, he says, all of our spiritual fathers passed under the cloud and through the waters and all drank from the same spiritual rock, which was Christ. Paul is saying that God was leading his people and yet they went astray in their hearts. And then he says to the Corinthians, a Greek church filled with Greeks and Jews in a Christian church, he says, these were our spiritual fathers. And this was done as an example for us that we would learn not to do it. You see, interestingly enough, sin has this way of distorting the purpose for a person or a country's life. It becomes a counterexample. Those people who engage in sloth and wrath and lust, they become an example, not of righteousness, but for others to say, don't do that. This is what God did to this rebellious people group. Like the Israelites, we too were in bondage and sin. Very clearly in John 8, Jesus tells the Pharisees, anyone who continues to sin is caught in bondage. They are a slave to sin. They serve sin. And so we read the Exodus not just as the historical fact of the Egyptians' oppression of Israel, but as a spiritual allegory that we too were slaves to sin. That in my unrighteousness, I was captive to the things that I did because I loved them. I was not only un, 
I was not only without power to deliver myself from the snare, but indeed the very snare was that my heart was in love with the thing that I was doing in rebellion against God. We are in bondage to sin. We were completely unable to deliver ourselves, but we're captive to sin, death, and the devil. 1 John 5, 19 is an amazing verse because it says that we know that the entire world lies under the power of the evil one. Think about that when you think of those who are outside the covenant of God, who have no understanding of who Christ is. They are under the power of the devil. Now, this is not glorifying the enemy. It's demonstrating the nature of sin. It deludes people's spirits from understanding their condition. They are blind and dead, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. Before they were united to Christ, they were strangers and aliens to the covenants of promise, without the covenant, without the law, and without hope, away from God, simply adrift in the ocean of death. That is the picture that the scriptures give to those who are trapped in sin. To accomplish our salvation then, God gave his son, our Passover lamb who was slain, that we would be redeemed from the feudal ways inherited by our forefathers. I think Paul is expi- uh, excuse me, Peter is explicitly referring to this because he writes his letter to the strangers and aliens in the diaspora, in the spiritual exile of the first century church. Peter writes a letter and he says that God has given us everything we need in Christ. He's given us all blessings for what purpose? That we would not continue to walk in the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, that is, the rebellious people of God in the nation of Israel. And though we were strangers and exiles, he has blessed us with every blessing by transferring us into the kingdom of the son of his love. As Colossians 1 tells us, we have been transferred, we have been transmitted out of the domain of darkness. We are no longer, as 1 John 5 says, we are no longer under the power of the evil one, but now we are in the kingdom of Christ. And as such, we have been, in a sense, brought into the promised land. Though we know clearly we are awaiting a much greater existence at the coming of Christ and the ushering in of the eschaton and the end of all things, the summing up of all things in Christ, we surely are waiting for a promised land, and yet the New Testament makes it clear you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. He has communicated to us, he's given to us, he's granted to us all things which pertain to life and godliness. Many Christians, especially singles or marrieds, or children, they think, oh, when I'm an adult, then I'll have what is necessary to be a righteous Christian. Or once I get married, then I'll finally have what is necessary to, to, for life and godliness. The scriptures make it clear we have in Christ everything that is needed for life and godliness today. So, practical steps here. As we approach Thanksgiving, a day that is marked for countrywide offering of thanks, we should do so in a thoroughly Christian way. We see that because the Israelites did not give thanks, they went astray in their hearts. And so understanding the importance of giving thanks, it ought to be a practice in all of our lives, and yet our spiritual forefathers in this country recognized the importance of setting apart an entire day to give thanks to God, to, solemn, to, to solemnly uh, give thanks to God, to set it apart as a time marked for special remembrance that we would not go another year without bringing to mind and expressing thanks to our Father 
for our giftings. So I want to give you three points and then a fourth final point. There are three things I want to say and then a fourth that I'll tack on. First, we ought to give thanks for our redemption and the manifold spiritual graces of God, which are our only chief and lasting treasure. As I mentioned before, I follow a Twitter account, which I now count as the grace of God to me. And it's just a tweet randomly at a given time, at, a, at an unspecified time every day. And the tweet is this, you will die someday. And the reason why I've come to treasure it is because it wakes me up every day out of the delusion of next week I'm going to do this and next year I'm going to do that. And, and, and the subtle deception that my heart loves to, I like my car, I like my computer, I like my job, I like my children, I like my wife. These things are going to be left behind. So we ought to give thanks to God for our supreme and only lasting treasure, which is the knowledge of Christ. Without the knowledge of Christ and and understanding and that knowledge being profitable so that our heart trusts in him, we have nothing at all. Unless you know Christ, you have nothing. And so if you know Christ, you have everything. This is what the first century church thrived on. These were people in poverty, people who were oppressed, people who had... If Philippians tells us the plundering of their property, how did they love Christ? Because they recognized him as the only thing that actually matters. That's the first thing we should do on Thanksgiving, is we should chiefly express thanks for spiritual graces. Most of the time we come to Thanksgiving and we, we utter our thanks for the physical things and we neglect the weightier things of life. Just as the Israelites received great gifts despite our remaining sins and lack of maturity, as 2 Peter, 2, uh, 2 Peter 1 tells us, we have been given everything necessary for life and godliness. And that doesn't include a car, a wife, a job, whatever you're wanting that you think is necessary to start living righteously. 2 Peter says, you already have what you need. These include, of course, not just the spiritual gifts of salvation and sanctification and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but the means of God's grace. That is, the the Holy Spirit, the deposit that he's entrusted to us, the church, the fellowship of Christian saints and brothers and pastors and leaders, the word of God, godly books, and Christian fellowship. I would deeply commend to you reading some of the Puritan authors on this Thanksgiving Day. I am convinced in reading the history and the biographies of certain men of God in times long forgotten, that we have lost what it means to be Christians. We have lost what it means to be Christians in cultural practice and in the way we conduct our homes. We have lost it because our spiritual fathers in this country have neglected honoring God in our homes. If you want an excellent book, which would maybe get here by Thanksgiving, if you have Amazon Prime, is... Thoughts on Family Worship by James Alexander. In that book, he chronicles numerous accounts, and I've been moved by the accounts that he says and recounts in those books to understand that we don't really understand what the Reformed Church recovered when it recovered personal, private prayer and family worship, that there is something deeply missing in our practice as Christian families. Nevertheless, second, we ought to give thanks both privately and corporately, acknowledging God's fatherly love over our homes, businesses, schools, and churches. Despite the manifold evils of our nation, God's grace has abounded on this country and blessed us with innumerable, innumerable blessings, none of which we deserve. It was, a comment was made in the, in the first hour about the, you know, when we convert to Christ, 
whether we have to renounce our country, I say we have to renounce our country in this sense, that we are not citizens to the United States first. We are citizens in the kingdom of God first. Despite that, not even without that idea, our nation has enslaved hundreds and millions of people. We have somewhat confessed that sin, and it is no longer being practiced on a racial level. It's now being practiced, in my opinion, on a class level. Despite that, even if that reality wasn't existing, we, about 40 years ago, have solemnized, we've, we've said there exists a right in the Constitution to murder your child through abortion. That is a terrible evil. And that alone should bring the wrath of God on a country. And yet, God in his infinite mercy and grace has spared us. So, what am I saying? I'm saying that despite our wickedness as a country, and indeed every nation of the earth shares the same sorts of sins, God allows the sun to rise every morning. And every sunrise should be considered as a miracle. If we read the history of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and the judgment that God brought on that, on that city and that, and that area, we should be in awe that simultaneously things are not happening in our country every day. Compared to the wickedness of that city, the wickedness that we allow to persist in our country is amazing. It is amazing. If you read any of the prophets of old, Jeremiah, Malachi, if you read any of the prophets of old and compare them to what we allow to take place in our country, it would be amazing to, to understand the sins that Israel was judged for and to wonder why are we still here. Through, technolo through technological and mechanical advances, even the poorest among us enjoy blessings which were unfathomable a hundred years ago. I'm always, whenever I meet with somebody about finances, I always am, sometimes I, I present them a, ch a challenge. Would you rather be John D. Rockefeller, the, the wealthiest man who's ever lived in our country, a hundred years ago, would you rather be him a hundred years ago or you today? And the smart answer is always you today. John D. Rockefeller was born in a home without plumbing. And yet every house represented here in this church has plumbing, probably internet access, natural gas piped in. You don't even have to go get wood. The sort of blessings in material prosperity that we have is unthinkable when you, when you imagine the history of the world and what other people have it faced. We have been given everything we need for life and godliness. And that, that, of course, is not just spiritual things, but the things which sustain life. Canned food itself is an amazing, amazing grace of God. Aspirin, ibuprofen, everything which we take for granted. Petroleum, to move our cars around. We're all wealthier than anyone who's ever lived in the history of the earth. And we routinely give no thanks for any of it. Third, we ought to give thanks having reflected on those things which were specific blessings, protections, and graces. For example, in my home this year, I got a new job, and that new job has been extremely good for me on a few levels. I now am meeting with people instead of working in my house all the time, and the pay is better, and the sort of work that I'm doing is better. I should reflect upon the specific graces of God and give him extra thanks for those sorts of things. So not just things like new jobs, but, but meeting friends and Christian fellowship and growing in grace. We should take the time to reflect 
upon the graces of God and offer up thanksgiving for specific things, we should put some thought into it. That God should even grant us another year to live itself is a grace which goes unmentioned. Psalm 90 says, Give us a heart of wisdom, God, that we would number our days, that we would consider the end of our life, that we would remember the prophets of old. Isaiah says, All flesh is grass. It's cut down today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow. That our life is a vapor and it is quickly fading. Recounting God's providence in specific ways is right and and good. Psalm 9 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. This is the type of thanksgiving that I'm calling us to do this year. Finally, this is the fourth thing. This is really a call to, to live in thanksgiving forever, is we should use this thanksgiving day as the means to solidify this practice in our daily lives. For you who did not grow up in a Christian home, or if you did grow up in a Christian home, and you're wondering, how do I practically do this? I would encourage you to adopt a tradition that my family uh, and my parents have practiced, and now as we are grown adult children, we continue to practice is we take time to express around the table each person for the specific things. And you ought to give some thought to that, but don't just share it among yourselves. You should, as a family together, offer up that thanks to God in prayer and, and perhaps even some hymns. Christians who pray unceasingly should give thanks unceasingly because thanksgiving is the beginning of prayer. So as we move to the table, let's come remembering that this Eucharist, which we celebrate, is a thanksgiving. It is a thanksgiving primarily for our share by God's grace alone in the death and body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he has enabled us to be able to have any share of life is, of course, as we said, the chief and root of all spiritual blessing. So God bless you as you celebrate Thanksgiving Day this year. I I pray that the Lord would give you the grace to take some time as families and individually, privately, to offer up thanks to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of thanksgiving. We thank you for a respite from toil, the having a day off from work and labor. Lord, we, we do ask you that you would cause us to give mind to the sins of your people Israel, that we would learn from their wicked example and that we would truly appreciate and meditate and lay hold of by faith the gift that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would begin to help us see how our faith ought to be worked out into every sphere of life, including, of course, this week as we celebrate with our families the day in which we've set apart to give you thanks. Lord, we have been granted so many gracious things. Of course, your son Jesus Christ and his knowledge, the gift of your spirit, your scriptures, your church, your people. And yet, Lord, all of these things are just the tip, just the root or the foundation, rather, of everything else that we've been given. Lord, we pray that you would give us the gift by your spirit this week of being able to truly express thanks. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.